The passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg leaves open a vacancy and a confirmation fight for the Supreme Court, one occurring during an already contentious election and a year that saw the impeachment of a president and a global pandemic. This isn't the first time we've had a vacancy in the nation's highest court during an election year. Here to discuss the history of these vacancies is Professor David Greenberg from Rutgers University. He is the author of numerous books about uh, presidents, including Nixon's Shadow, The History of an Image, and Republic, uh, and Republic of Spin. That's another book he wrote. Uh, Republic of Spin, An Inside History of the American Presidency. And he's also a contributing editor at Politico Magazine. So, Professor Greenberg, thanks for being on this show. Sure. Glad to be here with you. So whenever these uh, vacancies happen and there's a, a confirmation process, it seems that there's so much at stake in in these processes right now. What were vacancy nominations and these processes like uh, prior to the 20th century? Well, it's really um, been a varied history, which often gets forgotten um, for most of the 19th century, it was a pretty political process, and it was not uncommon for a president's nominee to the Supreme Court to be rejected or otherwise fail to make it onto the bench. Uh, I think something like a quarter of nominees failed. Uh, and especially in the years surrounding uh, slavery, you know, the antebellum years, um, you know, those questions could loom large in uh, confirmation fights. Um, then what's interesting in the 20th century, you have really the beginnings of the rise of the strong presidency with figures like Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. And a lot of society, including Congress, including the press, uh, becomes somewhat more deferential to presidential authority. So for, I would say, the first two-thirds of the 20th century, you have a pattern of deference where there isn't a lot of controversy. I mean, there are some individual cases. Maybe we could talk about um, Hugo Black, who was an uh, Alabama senator who um, had been in the Klan as a young man. He makes it onto the court anyway. So it's not that everything is completely smooth sailing, but you don't see anything like the contentiousness we've had. And then the thing I'd point out is you often hear people saying, oh, this all started with Robert Bork and the 1987 fight over his nomination, which of course failed. And although that gave us the term borking for trying to block a nominee, Bork wasn't really the start of anything. Uh, the, the current contentiousness really goes back to the late 60s. Uh, and there were a number of fights back then um, both under Lyndon Johnson as president and then under Richard Nixon after him. That really is what sort of created the dynamic that we see today. That's interesting. Uh, so first, uh, you said about a quarter uh, have failed, which is true. We're seeing uh, throughout history, presidents have had a 77% success rate in presidential nominations, but many presidents in the 19th century and 20th century have been um, rejected uh, or have had their nominations rejected. That includes James Madison, uh, John Quincy Adams, James Buchanan. And then the 20th century, you 
you named a few, but Eisenhower, Johnson, they've all had failed nominations. And that, that's very interesting. I understand that one of the nominees under Johnson was um, Abe Fortas, which I believe there were some uh, uh, corruption, I think, uh, co- like concerns about him as opposed to ideological concerns. Well, it, it was a little bit of a cover story. So Abe Fortas was a close friend and, and um, kind of confidant of President Johnson. Um, he was a big Washington lawyer um, with Texas roots, and uh, he, he was actually on the bench. He was an associate justice. Uh, and then in the last year of Johnson's presidency, uh, Earl Warren, who had been chief justice since the early 50s, appointed by Eisenhower, uh, announced he's announced he's resigning. And Johnson wants to elevate his his friend uh, Abe Fortas to the chief justice. And there is a huge controversy. There are some questions um, about various financial issues. But really, the main point of contention is that he was a part of this Warren court. The Supreme Court under Earl Warren, as probably a lot of people know, was a very activist court. It really transformed the nature of American society in in the 50s and 60s, starting with landmark decisions like Brown versus Board of Education, which said that separate uh, schools for blacks and whites was unconstitutional. Um, and going through a whole series of decisions on prayer in school, on voting rights, uh, on free speech. Um, And Fortas was sort of being held responsible for a lot of uh, these decisions, including (laughs) for some that that had occurred before he got onto the bench. And if you look at the whole uh, discourse, the the hearings for his... um, elevation to chief justice, you can see that uh, it's there, the Southern conservatives, both Democrats, there were still a lot of Southern conservatives in the Democratic Party, as well as Republicans kind of conspire uh, or join forces, maybe it was fairly above board, uh, to to block his elevation. Uh, And and there was clearly an ideological element to this. The final chapter is so Johnson has to pull the nomination, you know, doesn't get it through. Richard Nixon gets to make his own appointment. Um, uh, uh, Warren Berger becomes the next chief justice. But the Nixon people also then use some of the stories about Fortas's um, financial dealings to basically force his resignation altogether. And so Nixon gets an extra pick out of this. So it was a really political hardball uh, uh, set of developments. Hmm, that's interesting. So, I, from what you're saying, it sounds like uh, the liberals, the 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 Warren Court, which had moved uh, to the left, basically a lot of these fights began because of an attempt to uh, rein in the court after the Warren uh, ten, Warren's tenure. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, you could say that at bottom, it really was an argument about jurisprudence. You know, what should the court's role be? What kind of philosophy should govern their decisions? And you saw under the Warren Court, um, although 
probably not as radical as the conservatives made it out to be. Um, you, you definitely saw an expansion um, of the court's role and it sort of taking a more aggressive role in expanding rights. And terms like judicial activism and legislating from the bench had been used before, but ironically, they'd often been used by liberals saying that conservatives on the Supreme Court were abusing their power. Here you see it being um, sort of flipped around. And Richard Nixon in 1968 runs, you know, he runs on many issues, but it's a big issue for him in a way that the Supreme Court really had not been a presidential campaign issue uh, much before that. And Nixon says, we're going to appoint judges who don't legislate, you know, who interpret the law. It's the same refrain that the conservatives uh, and Republicans uh, articulate today. And so I think today's conflicts really have their genesis in the conflicts over the war in court and what it what it did to American law and society. Right. So. A question I have for you is in the past few decades, and I, I guess we might have to go back to when you mentioned the late 60s on, is there a difference in the way both parties approach confirmations? And I say that because there are conservatives who will argue that uh, Justices Sotomayor, Ginsburg, Breyer and Kagan were appointed relatively easily uh, without much controversy, but then they'll point to uh, Clarence Thomas, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, they'll, they'll point to those things. And then there's also the controversies about the filibuster and um, the removal of that at the lower level. So how would you say that both do, do both sides uh, kind of approach it from an even playing field or is one side kind of, uh, you know, did one side start it and the other side is now both sides are doing it? How would you describe that? Yeah, I think both sides basically play by uh, similar rules and similar dynamics, which is they like to pretend that they are operating only on the basis of, is this a deserving justice, a deserving nomination? When in fact, they are very concerned about what politics that judge or justice will show from the Supreme Court. And so on, on both sides, I think there is sort of this effort to, to kind of mask the political questions that are going on underneath. Now, I would say in the last, uh, you know, two, three presidencies, that facade has started to crumble. <laughs> it's become increasingly difficult to maintain the pretense that you are merely going on some kind of extra political uh, uh, criteria. But if you think about it, why were these people blocked? You know, Clarence Thomas, they, you know, they couldn't make the case. I mean, some of them tried, but it wasn't enough to say, well, he's going to be a conservative justice and he's replacing Thurgood Marshall, this great liberal lion, and that's going to fundamentally change the character of the court. So that's why we're against him. No, they first they tried couching it in terms of qualifications. You know, he was new to the bench. He got a low rating from the American Bar Association. 
Then they brought out the sexual harassment charges, uh, and that was said to be disqualifying. And so you've seen, uh, you know, even some of the um, justices who made it on relatively cleanly without too much um, uh, controversy, to the extent that there was questioning, to the extent that they were uh, undermined, it was on, well, what about financial dealings? Did you pay your taxes here? Or what about this investment? Did you have a conflict of interest? So there's been sort of an incentive because we have this pretense that, that the judiciary is divorced from raw politics, it has created this incentive to use sort of the politics of scandal to go after nominees. And then one way that presidents fight back, they try to immunize their nominees from those attacks. Well, I'd say in a few ways, but one is just by sheer academic excellence. So this accounts for why so many of them are coming out of you know, Harvard and Yale Law School uh, these days. It accounts for why so many of them have served uh, on um, the DC um, Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, it, there's not nearly as much variety of background. You know, Earl Warren was a governor, sometimes senators went on, but now, you know, they all come through the same pipeline, whether left or right. And then I would say the other thing that is often done is uh, a use of identity. And it's understood that an African-American nominee, a female nominee, uh, a, a Puerto Rican-American is, is going to be harder to impugn because there is, um, you know, that provides a certain um, um, uh, uh, patina of, of uh, historical path-breaking quality and so on. So for example, when Sandra Day O'Connor is appointed by Ronald Reagan as the first woman on the court, Democrats don't really give her a hard time. Um, they sort of understand the politics of that appointment. And even though there is an understanding that she's conservative, um, they, you know, they, they, they feel they're kind of politically defeated. So I think this is the dynamic and you see it on both sides. You see when Republicans are controlling the Senate and a Democrat has, is in the White House, it's like a mirror image of what happens when Republicans in the White House and the Democrats uh, control or, or have a strong voice in the Senate. So it's uh, been. Oh, say, sorry. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. No, no, no. After you. One more. One more thing. If you look just at the Bush, Obama, and Trump years, you will see, in in terms of the numbers of senators from the opposite party who are supportive, who, who vote for a nominee you'll see it, it becomes increasingly a party line vote. Um, so there is, the, you know, we talk about polarization happening in all aspects of political life, but you really see it in just the numbers of, you know, uh, some Democrats voted for John Roberts, a bit fewer, I believe, voted for Sam Alito, fewer <laughs> for Gorsuch and, and the Trump nominees. And on the flip side, um, you know, I think uh, fewer Republicans supported uh, Obama's uh, nominees than they had 
Bill Clinton's nominees. So you see this polarization, this unwillingness to even uh, consider breaking ranks uh, intensifying over the last few decades. Hmm. Yeah. So um, in the last few years, people have talked about how the use of the filibuster uh, at, during President Bush's first term, uh, that was used a lot to block his nominees to the circuit courts. And then in 2013, where Senator Reid broke the filibuster for appellate nominees, and then eventually that let its the nuclear option led its way to the Supreme Court. Um, do you think that were those moves really unprecedented? Were they? What was the impact of that? And a lot of people will say that this is this was kind of a bad tactical move at the time because now it's come back to haunt the Democrats. Look, it, 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 it's it's very hard. Um, I think there's always this um, illusion that some kind of clever procedural stratagem will help you in the present moment. And what should be obvious, but they always seem to forget, again, on both sides, is that the tables could be turned, you know, in a year. And we've had such closely divided Senates and such closely divided government, really ever since like Bush v. Gore, um, there was a period in the Bush administration where, you know, somebody retires or Jim Jeffords, Vermont, a senator changed party and this sort of tips the balance of who controls the Senate. We have a, a lot of very close, um, closely divided institutions, uh, both Congress and then, you know, the White House presidents who are elected by a hair's breadth, by winning the popular vote, I mean, losing the popular vote, but winning the electoral college. So all this very closely held division should be kept in mind because it should become, it should be obvious that the tables could turn very quickly. But when you're in the moment and when you're uh, frustrated that the other side is obstructing your agenda, it's very tempting to say, okay, well, let's do away with the filibuster. Um, you know, the, the rules can serve either side. Um, and, uh, you know, right now, Democrats, of course, are talking about expanding or packing the Supreme Court should Biden win and should they get a Democratic Senate. And, you know, the, the unanswered question is, well, what about four years? Let's say the Republicans get control. Do you want them to do the same thing? Um, so, you know, when they talk about the nuclear option, the, the metaphor of an arms race, I think, is apropos. I think, look, you could criticize Harry Reid for uh, doing away with it, but if he didn't, somebody else would have felt pressure to. There is this pressure to escalate, and um, I, I think it's unwise. I think it's better to try to uh, keep the rules much as they are, and to at least have an informal understanding that we're going to operate within these accepted rules and norms. But both sides find that hard to live with. Um, you know, most recently, of course, there was the case of Mitch McConnell um, in 2016, refusing to give a vote to Merrick Garland um, for, uh, I forget if it was eight months, you know, several months on end, which was 
almost unprecedented. I think it was similar to sort of what happened actually uh, under Lyndon Johnson when when he could not get a Fortis con confirmed, although at least there were hearings there. Um, so, um, you know, both sides, I think, have done their part in eroding the sense of senatorial uh, goodwill and, and um, tradition that, you know, at one point probably did count for a lot more than it, than it seems to today. So you, you mentioned the increasing polarization under uh, Presidents uh, George W. Bush and Barack Obama. And I think as a measure of that, uh, there was a time when uh, the U.S. Senate confirmed uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg 96 to 3. This was in 1993. So that seems like eons ago. Um, so one thing everyone's talking about is whether what the Republicans in the Senate are doing is hypocritical in the sense that whether it's fair that to block uh, a nominee by a Democratic president in 2016, but then to confirm a nominee now that a Republican is in office. And I've seen a lot of different things on this. Um, there was a uh, uh, Congressional Research Service report that said that this is the 14th time. So there have been 13 times a vacancy has happened during election years. And I believe seven of those times happened during same party having the White House and the Senate. And, and six out of seven of those times they passed it, or they confirmed the nominee. Six times it was when the Senate and the House, or sorry, the Senate and the White House were different parties and only one time was confirmed. What do you make of that? What do you make of the history and, and the claims that this is kind of a hypocritical move? Well, look, I think the the hypocrisy of McConnell and the Republicans lies in not having brought Garland to a vote in 2016 and then plowing ahead, you know, in not quite record time, but quite rapidly to make sure uh, that Amy Coney Barrett will get a vote. Um, looks like before... Uh, election day, but if not election day, then uh, in in uh, short shortly thereafter. Um, so, you know, the the prehistory pre two thousand sixteen really doesn't apply much because it was in two thousand sixteen that McConnell, you know, articulated this rationale. Oh, we're in an election year, so therefore we shouldn't bring this nomination forward. That was a completely uh, novel claim. Um, there, there was no, you know, there's, there's no reason why when you have someone die in what was it, February, March of 2016, that you're so close to the election that uh, you can't have the vote. So Democrats, I think, are rightly crying hypocrisy this time around because we're even much closer to the election. So the, the argument that the winner of the presidential election should get to make the next nomination is what McConnell said in 16. And if he were to apply it today, of course, it would mean holding off. Uh, now, there is, I think, a lesser uh, hypocrisy or error on the Democratic side. Some Democrats are saying, Mitch McConnell, we just want to hold you 
to the rule that you articulated four years ago. That's fine. That's, I think, what they should be saying. In the presidential debates, uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris didn't really get into the intricacies of Merrick Garland and Senate tradition and so on. They found it simpler to just make the argument the next president should decide. So that, I think, is, is a mistake. It's an intellectual inconsistency because, in effect, they are now adopting McConnell's position of 16 rather than saying, Mitch McConnell, you set this rule in 2016. We're just going to hold you to our own rule. It was, it was wrong then, but if it's what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander, that it should apply equally uh, in all respects. So that's where I think uh, the, the hypocrisy uh, comes in, really pr- predominantly on the Republican side. But I think Biden and Harris have made a uh, strategic or rhetorical error in not fully articulating what their reason for being upset with the Republicans is. I, I've heard people say that McConnell was referring to situations where it, it's a divided party rule, president, uh, White House is under one party, Senate under the other. And in that sense, the Senate, led by the other party, has the prerogative to choose whether they hold the hearings or not. And But you're saying that you don't think that the history applies in that case? Yeah, I mean, if that's what McConnell was saying, in effect, that all he's really saying is, if we have the majority in the Senate, we can do as we please, which is obviously true. I mean, what he's saying in 2016 is, we have divided government with a Republican Senate, so the Republican Senate can hold up the nominee. And then in 2020, we have a, you know, Republican control and a Republican White House, so we can proceed. All that is saying, that's not articulating a rule or a principle. That's just stating the fact that the Senate can, can if the majority leader is uh, uh, effective enough, can operate along party lines if it so chooses. Of course it can if it so chooses. That's just the sort of might makes right articulation of the obvious. What he was saying in 2016 was, because we have this presidential election on the horizon, the normal considerations should be suspended. And if that applied in 2016, you can't consistently argue it doesn't also apply in 2020 just because you have a different party occupying the White House. If what he wants to say is, sure, we have the power to approve a nominee, to delay a nominee, to reject a nominee. If, if that's all he said, then people would say, okay, you're just saying you're going to work your will. And, and that's politics. And people may have been upset that Garland didn't get appointed, but it would not have been based on a sort of concocted principle that, that he sort of pulled out of thin air. Well, I, I think your point earlier is quite apt when you say that uh, this is kind of this is like a two side. It's an arms race, essentially. And I think uh, one of the things that uh, for the Democrats, 
uh, I believe one Obama's White House counsel, Catherine Rumler, she essentially said that if it was the parties were switched uh, in 2016, she would have recommended the same strategy. So I think there you kind of see the that sense. Um, uh, now, you alluded to the court packing. Uh, President Roosevelt's famous attempt to pack the court. Democrats are considering that now. What can you tell me about that episode in American history? I mean, obviously, it's it's usually considered one of uh, big blunders of FDR's uh, administration. He was usually someone who was quite politically keen and understood how to marshal support. In this case, that wasn't the case. So how, how has that affected um, the idea of court packing? What lessons does that have for the current potential attempt? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot that can be said about it. And I recommend to your listeners a wonderful book called Mutual Contempt. I'm I'm sorry, called um, Supreme Power by my friend uh, Jeff Schessel, historian. Mutual Contempt is another book he wrote. And um, it it really is sort of become the definitive go-to book on the FDR court packing. FDR was sort of riding high off uh, re-election um, by in a second landslide in 1937, and he'd been frustrated even before his reelection by a conservative Supreme Court that was striking down a lot of key pieces of the New Deal. And so the solution he got, uh, they came up with, was that for each justice, I believe it was over 70, um, that the president would get to a point um, another justice, hence expanding or packing the court. Um, what he didn't count on was how unpopular this would be, not only among Republicans and conservatives, but in his own party. He had a hard time getting Congress to support it. He Letters flooded the White House telling him what a mistake he was making. There were already concerns that the strong government approach that characterized the New Deal was threatening to make FDR, some people said, into a dictator or something like it. So this just, just reeked all the more of a, of a power grab and not sort of abiding by another branch of government having its, its equal weight. Uh, people point out there's nothing in the Constitution that decrees that the Supreme Court must have nine uh, justices, and indeed the size has changed over time. But it hadn't changed in a long time when FDR did this. And of course, it hasn't changed since. And so even though the nine justices is is a human political invention uh, that we Americans have come up with, it has attained a kind of sacrosanct status. And I think to tinker with it, to threaten to change it, um, is, is, seems violative to people, even to a lot of liberals, even to a lot of Democrats. Um, the people who are talking about it, I think, are being a bit uh, ignorant of history. It's, it's become, you know, they talk about social security sometimes as the third rail of politics, not to touch it. I think the number nine, nine justices, is something like a third rail. I think, you know, if Biden were to be elected, if he were to try to change it from nine to 11 or whatever, um, there would be a huge backlash and it would be a big political disaster for him. It certainly was 
for FDR, who had a lot more power and standing and goodwill um, than Biden does. So it's it's a very dicey issue. And I think some people are being a bit too cavalier about it. Right. And uh, you mentioned the idea of of the a might makes right approach and it it kind of strikes strikes me first of all when FDR he was elected he he won one of the biggest landslides in history is 46 out of 48 states so he had a lot of might behind him and i think it struck a lot of people as a blatantly political move uh and there's kind of this equilibrium that you mentioned as far as having nine justices this is kind of if we can't agree on everything this is at least the number we can agree upon um it seems like that episode, FDR's court packing, is a cautionary tale to anyone that wants to pack the court today. The Democrats lost 72 seats uh, in the House in the 1938 election after the court packing scheme, seven in the Senate. Um, I, I also, Justice Ginsburg herself, a lot is made of her kind of her dying wishes, but she's actually quoted saying, Quote, nine seems to be a good number. I think it was a bad idea when President Roosevelt tried to pack the court. If anything, it would make the look uh, the court look partisan. So, again, that's uh, adding to your point there. Um, what do you see the future of court nominations? Uh, where do you see the future going? I mean, is this just going to be an arms race that just gets worse and worse to the point where... Uh, court the courts will change every you know there's going to be a court packing scheme every time now how do you or do you think things will kind of level off what what do you think well it's always hard to predict uh the future um i do think a second unfortunate um side effect of the emphasis on court packing as it were expanding the number of supreme court justices is that it's diverting a conversation that might more um, helpfully be about other kinds of judicial reform, um, perhaps ending life tenure, 18-year uh, terms. There's a whole community of people who have come up with lots of solutions that might actually have some bipartisan um, appeal that wouldn't be seen as just, you know, we're in charge now, we're going to ram through our plan. Uh, and if you can come up with some bipartisan reform, you know, I, I think, for example, we've come to recognize how important life tenure is. People are living longer. Presidents are making a point of appointing justices at relatively young ages. Uh, Amy Coney Barrett, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, all very young. Kagan, pretty young. Um, so this is, this is a pattern again, sort of on both sides and, and there's sort of, um, there's some danger in that. I mean, uh, you know, it was not too long ago, David Souter, um, just decided to leave the bench. I think it was, Washington was never really the thing for him, but now we have, you know, justices staying on until their dying day. Um, an interesting sidelight to the court packing uh, effort of, of, of 37, um, a, a student of mine, um, Judge Glock, did a lot of research on this and has, has published on it. A lot of those um, four horsemen, or the older conservative justices who are frustrating FDR's agenda, they had had their pensions cut just a few years before under Herbert Hoover 
as part of an austerity measure in the Great Depression. During the middle of the whole court packing fight, Congress actually restores their pensions to what they had been before. And this actually encourages them to retire. So, you know, maybe that's part of the solution. Maybe we need to think about ways to uh, encourage justices to retire a little younger. I mean, some of them, you know, John Paul Stevens still writes wonderful things for the New York Review of Books, and he's, you know, what, 100 or so. I mean, so it's not... um, it's not that age necessarily makes one an enfeebled justice, although it's happened. I mean, in Bob Woodward's book, The Brethren, he reported that William O. Douglas had become incontinent on the bench. I mean, he, he should have retired. So, so there's a lot, I think, that can be done uh, in a good faith reformist effort that would be nonpartisan that might help sort of find a way out of this uh, morass. Um, But I do think so long as our country is so deeply divided and the Supreme Court is just one arena in which we see this, we see it in media and we see it in where people are choosing to live and, you know, we see it in Congress and so on. So as long as this division and polarization obtains in society and and the political arena in general, I'm not sure the Supreme Court can be protected from it very easily. Hmm. An ominous note. Uh, one, one thing <laughs> I'll say, point. yeah, yeah. One thing I'll say is that uh, before we conclude is that uh, the court does not seem to be any less important than it is. It seems like it'll only get more important. And according to um, the the docket, it seems that uh, Obamacare hearings will begin a week after the election, and abortion cases in Texas and other states are just an appeal or two away from the Supreme Court. Same thing goes with uh, DACA, despite the court's decision. And of course, any dispute involving the presidential election could find itself at the feet of the court. The, and there, there's also a copyright dispute between two small companies. They're called Google and Oracle. So that could end up being on the court pretty soon. But Professor Greenberg, we, we really appreciate you being on our show. For our listeners, he's written the books Nixon's Shadow and Republic of Spin. Uh, make sure you check that out. He's also a contributing editor and columnist at Political Magazine, so you could check out his works. He's usually in the history department, so those are the Politico articles that I, I love to read, being a history nerd. So, Professor Greenberg, we, we appreciate all of your insight, and uh, we thank you for being on the show. It's been terrific. Great talking with you. This American President is produced by myself, Richard Lim, and Michael Neal. If you like what you've been hearing, you can help us by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. We are a proud partner of Evergreen Podcasts. Please visit evergreenpodcasts.com for more shows you might enjoy. I'm Richard Lim. We're back next time with more This American President. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to. 
but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.